The morning shift had just clocked on when the factory tannoy crackled into life. Foreman to the manager's office, straight away, please. The foreman sighed and put down his tools. What? Already? He thought. We barely got started. The manager looked up at him as he came in. Do you want the good news or the bad? He said, glancing at the foreman who stood at the door. Before the foreman could reply, he continued. The good news? We have a large emergency order, premium rates. But the bad news? It must be dispatched by close of business tonight. So I want you to go down to the job centre and find me half a dozen extra contract workers, just for one day. Make sure you offer a good rate, as we need them straight away, okay? Within an hour, the foreman came back with the extra men who were very pleased to have been selected, and they all set to work. But by midday, it was clear that if they were going to complete the order, further hands would be needed. And so the foreman went back into town again and came back with a further group of men. By afternoon break, despite everyone working as hard as they could, the manager could see that the job was still not going to get done in time. So the foreman was dispatched a third time to hire another group of men. But even so, only an hour before factory shut down for the night, the foreman was again at the job centre, seeing if he could hire anyone else to help with the final packing and dispatch work. With barely a minute to spare, the order was completed and shipped, much to everyone's delight and relief, especially the managers. He called the foreman into his office while the men waited outside. They could see the manager giving instructions to the foreman who nodded in agreement. After a few moments, the foreman came out and called out the names of all the men who had arrived for the final few minutes of work. And as they came forward, they each received a full day's pay. Their delight was nothing compared to the excited buzz amongst the other men, especially those who had been there all day. This was going to be a payday to remember for a long time. Imagine their shock when every man from the first to the last received exactly the same amount of money. One day's pay at the agreed rate. The men began to mutter and complain, pushing and jostling the foreman, and it was clear that there was a danger that a fight could break out. The manager came out to find out what was going on. One of the men who had been there all day spoke up. Those guys over there, they've only been here a few minutes. You paid them as much as us. And we've been slaving away all day. That's just not fair. The factory manager paused for a moment, folded his arms, looked at the man and said, In what way have I cheated you? Haven't you been paid what was agreed when you signed on this morning? What business of yours is it if I want to pay everyone the same? Don't I have the right to do that? Why should you moan and criticise my generosity? Now take your money and go.
And that is what the kingdom of heaven is like. Those who today come first, those who today come last, will be first in line. And those who think they should be first will be last of all. If you've got an NIV Bible, you'll notice this morning that the, uh, the title of the parable is the parable of the workers in the vineyard. Now, we need to remember that titles are only titles. They are given by the Bible translators in order to try to help us. They're not actually a part of the Bible text any more than the, the devotional footnotes at the bottom of some Bibles are any more than chapters and verses are, okay? So um, I hope you won't be offended when I, sing, when, when I say to you, I think that they've got this title wrong. That, uh, that suggests, the title that's uh, given there suggests that the focus of attention, the central focus of the story is on the workers, but they are not the central focus. The central focus of this story is the, the compassionate and generous employer who throughout the day shows generosity and compassion to the workers. So I'm going to change the title of this, uh, this parable. And we're going to call it The Parable of the Compassionate Employer. In a similar way, in Luke's Gospel, we've got the parable there of the lost son, or the prodigal son, as we know. And again, I think that that uh, is wrongly named because the prodigal son is not the central figure of that story either. It's the father, the father who is compassionate and merciful. Okay, the text. Chapter 20, verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I said that Jesus is quite difficult on times to understand. You know, it's, it's hard for us being separated by 2,000 years and 2,000 miles to pin down his teaching to understand it today. And we said back then, and we've said many times over the years in this church, that the central teaching of Jesus is the kingdom, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. But what does the kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven mean? Jesus, rather frustratingly, never seems to provide a direct answer to that. He, he never really tells us in so many words. We want precise, clear-cut, accurate definitions of what this kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven really is. And all we get from Jesus is a story. And I feel a little bit exasperated by that on times. I really do. I find it a little bit maddening, you know, because we all want to know what this kingdom is all about. And then Jesus tells us another story. And on this occasion, the story that he tells us, the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner. I suggested previously that when we see the word kingdom in the New Testament, particularly in the Gospels, that we need to change the word so that we can understand it a little bit better in our 21st century context and to, uh, to change the word into revolution. So the kingdom of God becomes the, the revolution of God, the kingdom of heaven, the revolution of heaven. And um, I've already been told by, by some of you over the last couple of weeks that you actually find it hard to use that word, revolution, when you are trans uh, uh, replacing it for, for kingdom. And the reason for that is that some of you, I think probably all of us actually, we find the term revolution 
linked to uh, bloody upri uh, uprisings in various countries and, um, and so forth. Violence, freedom fighters attempting to overthrow governments, instigating regime change and so forth. I do understand that, but I'm stick still sticking with revolution, okay? Um, because I think that the revolution of God is the very opposite of all of that. The revolution of God, God's kingdom, is a little bit of heaven coming to earth. It's God's kingdom coming and God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven, as Jesus taught us to, to pray in the Lord's Prayer. It's a revolution of love that replaces hate. It's a revolution of goodness that replaces evil. Forgiveness in place of revenge and hostility. Compassion in place of hatred and self-centeredness. So in this story, right at the very start, we are being told by Jesus that he is going to tell us something really, really important about this revolution, God's revolution, a revolution that we've all been invited to, to take part in. So let's walk through this story together. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. Now, the, on, the owner of the vineyard needs some extra workers, perhaps to prune the vines or to, because it's harvest, we're not told. So he heads to, towards this special corner of the market where those uh, people without a job <clears throat> assemble each day, hoping that someone is going to come along to hire them. Now, that ancient custom still survives in some Middle Eastern countries today, where young men will run towards employers who turn up in white vans, and they are hoping to be selected for a day's work. And if they work well, maybe two days or three days or a week, perhaps. We read in verse 3. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. Just notice that for a moment. On these other occasions, the second, the third, and the fourth times, unlike with the first batch of workers, the employer didn't quote an amount on those occasions. He just says there in verse 4, I will pay you whatever is right. And these guys, they haven't got a contract. They don't know that they are working for a denarius, a day's wage. They just take the word of the, the owner. And I suppose they go away rejoicing that they'll have some money to feed their families at the end of the day. Verse 6. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Verse 7, because no one has hired us, they answered. Now, the owner of the vineyard had travelled back to this marketplace on the, for five times that day. And I can well imagine that the guys who were still standing there were, were pretty disheartened. Uh, they'd been standing there all day, dreading having to go home at the end of the day to meet up with an anxious wife or children who are hungry with the bad news of frustration and devastation and disappointment that he had no work on the day. He said to them, 
you also go and work in my vineyard. Now, the first group here had a contract, a day's work for a denarius. The second, the third, the fourth groups were promised an unspecified payment. I will pay you whatever is right. But this group were not even assured that they would have anything at all. All they had was knowing the man himself. They didn't even have the man's word on it. They just trusted him. Verse 8. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. Hmm. I know that we need great care when we are reading the parables of Jesus, not to read into the story uh, something that isn't there or something that Jesus didn't intend. But I don't know if you've ever asked yourself in reading this, uh, this, this great parable, why was it that the owner of the vineyard went on five occasions to the, the marketplace uh, doing all the donkey work when he had a foreman that could have done it for him? Why does the, the business, businessman make all five trips when that should have been in the job description of his foreman? Now, maybe, maybe not, maybe we are meant to ask those questions of why. And if so, I would like to suggest a reason for the owner's involvement rather than his foreman. And that is compassion. I believe that the owner is, is driven by compassion for those men who couldn't find work. And he wanted to be a part of that in providing for their families. Now, in Martin's excellent um, modern parable that we heard earlier, the workers were employed in that story to meet a deadline at the end of the day or they were going to lose the order. But in Jesus' parable, I doubt very much that there would have been a deadline at all of needing to get everything done by the end of the day. So if the reason for employing these extra workers in Jesus' story was not to meet some deadline at the end of the day, why did the vineyard owner need to employ those extra workers in the 11th hour? Why did he need to do that? Why not wait until the following day and then he could get a full day's work out of them? And again, I think that the answer to that, or my answer at least, is he did it because of compassion. The owner felt just the need to reach out to these men who had wives and children to support. And it wasn't so much for them to meet his need, but he wanted to meet their needs. And that's why they were employed. And for him it was personal. It was not just some kind of business transaction here, but he was touched with the plight of these people and he wanted to help in some way. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to the fo his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. Now again, for me that's a little bit of a strange decision really, because if he paid the, the, the full day workers first, and they received their denarius as were promised, and then they could have gone off and done their own thing, there wouldn't have been a problem, would there? Because he could have pray, paid those who were employed later in the day, one denarius, ten denarius, a hundred denarii. It didn't make any difference at all. But to give them a full day's wage in front of the others was a recipe of unrest amongst the workers. Let's see what we're told in verse 9. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. 
So when those came who were hired, so when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. My word, we didn't see that one coming, did we? Verse 13. But he answered one of them, Am I not being unfair to you, friend? Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. What are we supposed to make of this rather odd story? What point was Jesus making in telling this? Well, the first thing I want to say really is that uh, Jesus, when he told this story, he wasn't providing for us a, a lesson in good business management. You know, if this was all about business management, I think that uh, this guy is going to go bankrupt very, very soon. This is not a, an example of good business management. In fact, what this guy does in the parable contradicts everything known about good employee motivation and fair compensation. I doubt very much if the London School of Economics teaches this method to their MBA students. I don't think that's going to happen at all. So in one sense, in the economic sense, it makes no sense whatsoever. But I think that that was Jesus' intention. So... What does this rather odd story tell us about the kingdom of heaven? Start with a question. Question for you. Are you tempted to side with the full day workers in this story? A few of you nodding your head. Do you feel a measure of sympathy for them? They're up early in the morning, out of their beds. They got to the marketplace. They were hired at six o'clock in the morning. They worked hard all day in the scorching heat. Didn't shirk their duties, didn't shirk their responsibilities. Worked hard all day. And then they, see, they receive the same financial reward as the latecomers who probably didn't have time to work up a sweat. Let me ask that question another way. If you had been one of those workers, those all-day workers, would you have been one of those who spoke up to the foreman or to the owner at the end of the day when you saw what was happening? And if you weren't brave enough for that, you would have gone home and had a good grumble about the day to your missus. Yeah? probably saying through gritted teeth, it's not fair, you know. It's not fair. You see, I think every parent has at some time or other heard those words, it's not fair. The first word spoken by many children is mum. Well, mum, where I come from anyway. Mum around you, isn't it? Mum. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, right, okay. Right, okay, whatever. 
Okay, I'm only a pastor. Okay. The most well-used word probably is the word no. And the most well-used phrase, I think, amongst uh, children is, it's not fair. It's not fair. And children really have an acute sense of justice, even at a, a, an early age. And there's no way that they're going to be outdone. Harry, it's time for bed. It's not fair. My friends in my class at school, they stay up much later than this. Lizzie, can you help with the dishes? It's not fair. And then Lizzie goes on to give uh, a record of what her siblings do in the house and what they don't do. And the times that they have not done the perform, uh, performed at the same task and will give you a record for the last couple of years and, you know, of all that's uh, been done. And George, can you do your homework? It's not fair. We've not had homework for a month. And then we get a month's work and it's got to be in by tomorrow morning. So, based on this parable of Jesus, parents, the next time that your kids tell you it's not fair, tell them, neither is the kingdom of heaven. Okay? Okay? You've got my permission to say that. Neither is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, I'm thinking of writing a book on parenting. Perhaps not. <laughs> okay. If after hearing this story uh, this morning, we are saying it's not fair, and I think many of us are, then we are on the first step of understanding what is going on in this story. Because that is precisely what Jesus wants us to think. That's the way that Jesus intends us to feel that sense of injustice, it's not fair. You see, the Pharisees in Jesus' day believed that uh, God only loves certain kinds of people. And not surprisingly, the people that God loved, according to the Pharisees, looked exactly like them. Those who kept the rules. Those who lived uprightly. They believed that God's love was limited, it was partial, it was restricted to certain kinds of people. Holy people! They had a great problem in believing that God loves all people and they despised the people that Jesus socialized with. You know, people who are tax collectors and people of mixed race and foreigners and prostitutes. And the Pharisees just lumped together all these people and they saw them as castoffs. Why waste your time, Jesus, with, with these, these no-hopers? And they ridiculed Jesus for it. And they called Jesus a friend of sinners. And they didn't mean that as a compliment to Jesus. They meant that as a slur on his character. He spends time with sinners. How therefore can he be a prophet? How can he know God's ways? He doesn't even know who these people are. He doesn't know what they're like. But Jesus didn't see it that way at all. He said such things as, The Son of Man, speaking of himself, came to seek and save the lost, those wandering through life, no sense of purpose, no reason for being unconnected to God. Jesus on another occasion said, it's not the healthy that need a doctor, but it's the sick. In other words, it's people like these, people that you see at the bottom end of society that I love, that I'm here for. In Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, now the tax collectors and sinners, in inverted commas, were all gathering round to hear him. 
But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. You see, they were not best pleased with Jesus that he was socializing with people that they regarded as the dregs of society. And then Jesus tells three quick stories in succession, stories which are well known to us. The story of the lost sheep, the lost lost coin, and the lost son. And I think we're on familiar territory here. In the third parable, the youngest son asks for his share of the father's inheritance early. And in ancient culture, to do that, the son was essentially saying to his father, I wish you were dead. I wish you were dead. The father in the story unexpectedly agrees and gives it to him. He takes the money, he leaves home, he wastes everything on a wayward life, he comes on hard times, he returns home, hoping to be hired as one of his father's hired servants in his father's business. His father again unexpectedly welcomes him home, embraces him, throws a homecoming party for the son that was lost and is now found again. Rings, cloaks, sandals, fatted calf, the business. His older brother hears about this and refuses to join in. He was not well pleased that his younger prodigal brother had returned. I don't think the fatted calf was too chuffed about it either. He tells his father that it's unfair that his father had never even given him a goat to celebrate with his friends. Luke 15, 29. All these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could go and celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, <coughs> notice that, he's even spitting out his name, he can't even mention his name, this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home. You kill the fatty calf for him. You see, the bottom line of that response is that he thinks his father is being what? Unfair. He thinks that he has been, he thinks that he has been shortchanged. And he's furious about it. Why on earth should his father be generous and compassionate to this loutish brother of his. But Jesus is saying in our parable this morning that God, as as represented by the, the owner of the vineyard, is astonishingly compassionate. He is extravagantly generous. He is saying that the kingdom of heaven, just catch this, he is saying that the kingdom of heaven has plenty of room for younger sons. That's what he's saying. He is saying that there is always a place for them. Don't miss that. Christian author Max Licardo makes a a point powerfully in his book, The The Grip of Grace. And this is an incredible story. He tells the story of Jeffrey Dahmer, a murderer and cannibal who lived in Milwaukee. And this is what he writes. You know what disturbs me most about Jeffrey Dahmer? What disturbs me most are not his acts, though they are disgusting. Dahmer was convicted of 17 murders. 11 corpses were found in his apartment. He cut off arms. He ate body parts. My thesaurus has 204 synonyms for vile, but each falls short of describing a man who kept skulls in his refrigerator and hoarded a human heart. 
He redefined the boundary of brutality. The Milwaukee monster dangled from the lowest rung of human conduct and then dropped. But that's not what troubles me most. Can I tell you what troubles me most about Jeffrey Dahmer? Not his trial, as disturbing as it was with all those pictures of him sitting serenely in court, face frozen, motionless, no sign of remorse, no hint of regret. Remember his steely eyes and impassive face? But I don't speak of him because of his trial. There's another reason. Can I tell you what really troubles me about Jeffrey Dahmer? Not his punishment, though life without parole is hardly an exchange for his actions. How many years would satisfy justice? A lifetime in jail for every life he took? But that's another matter, and that's not what troubles me most about Jeffrey Dahmer. May I tell you what does? His conversion. Months before an inmate murdered him, Jeffrey Dahmer became a Christian. Said he repented, was sorry for what he did, profoundly sorry. Said that he put his faith in Christ, was baptised, started life over, began reading Christian books and attending chapel. Sins washed, soul cleansed, past forgiven. That troubles me. It shouldn't, but it does. Grace for a cannibal. Maybe you have the same reservations. If not about Damer, perhaps about somebody else. You've sentenced them, maybe not in court, but in your hearts. We put them behind bars and locked the door. They are forever imprisoned by our disgust. And then the impossible happens. They repent. Our response, dare I say it, is that we cross our arms, we furrow our brows and and say, God won't let you off the hook that easy. Not after what you did. God is kind but he's no wimp. God is for average sinners like me, and grace is for average sinners like me, not for deviants like you. Now, I think that Max Licata puts that so eloquently, and I know I've shared with you that story before, and it's what many of us might think. You see, when we hear stories like that, what we want to do, let's be honest, is shout out, grace, it's not fair. Or perhaps even more forcefully than that, it's not only unfair, it's scandalous. We often identify ourselves with the workers who worked all day long in the scorching heat. And this morning, by the nods of heads in this place when I asked those questions earlier, I think we do. And I think we probably identify a little bit with the older brother as well, especially when we hear stories like the story of Jeffrey Dahmer. And we might say... Why should someone like Jeffrey Dahmer be in heaven? Why should someone who has lived their entire life selfishly be in heaven alongside and experience the ecstasy alongside those Christians who have suffered greatly for Christ? It's scandalous. It's shocking. It's outrageous. It's not fair. Why should that thief on the cross next to Jesus, after living his life as a criminal, defrauding, stealing from others, making life harder than it already was for his neighbours, why should he be welcomed into paradise alongside the disciples, many of whom who gave their lives for Jesus? You see, Jesus showed that man extravagant generosity 
The same kind of generosity that we are reading about here in this parable this morning of the owner of the vineyard who showed those late shift workers. The father in the story of the prodigal, the owner of the vineyard, redefined fairness. And in doing so, they show that God's perspective on these matters is so different from human perspective. With God, thankfully, people do not get what they deserve. And that's called grace. People do not get what they deserve. We do not get what we deserve. That is grace. And that means that those who are employed to work one hour late in the afternoon get a day's wages. And those on the street corners are invited to the king's banquet. And parties are thrown for younger brothers who have squandered their inheritance. Paul, the apostle, was another one who received from God what he didn't deserve. He was a persecutor of Christians. He was what some of us might call a religious fanatic, hounding out people who didn't have the same beliefs as him. Yet Jesus appeared to him and welcomed him into his kingdom. Paul later writes these words. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 9. He writes, For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. You see, he was just very conscious there that he should have been at the bottom of the pile of no hopers. And then he says, but by the grace of God. In, in other words, God's love, because of God's love, that love which I didn't deserve, I am what I am. You see, Paul was very aware that God did not treat him as his sins deserve. I am what I am, he said, by God's grace. Didn't receive what God, from God what he deserved, and neither do we. And I know that I have talked about this not only scores of times, perhaps hundreds of times in the last 25 years. And I'll put it on screen for you again, because this is the heart of the Christian life. That grace means that there is nothing that we can do to make God love us more. And grace means that there is nothing that we can do to make God love us less. The thief on the cross did not deserve grace. The Apostle Paul did not deserve grace. Jeffrey Dahmer did not deserve grace. And we don't deserve grace either. It wouldn't be grace if, if, if we deserved it, would it? You know, it's so easy to say that. And to say that someone deserves grace really is a contradiction in terms. We can no more deserve grace than we can plan our own surprise party. Think about that. In, a, in the way that planning voids the idea of surprise, claiming to deserve voids the idea of grace. But fortunately for us, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, does not operate on the principles of fairness. The kingdom of heaven operates on the principles of grace. You see, when I look at my own life and think of all the things that I have done wrong, and when I consider the times that I have said to God, I wouldn't, but then I did, or said to God, I would, but then I didn't. If God was fair, it would mean that I would get what I deserve. But grace means that none of us gets what we deserve. Grace means that God 
is far, far, far more than fair. But he's compassionate, he's generous, and he's gracious, and he's forgiving. We used to sing a song in this church some uh, years back. It was entitled, Only by Grace. Do you remember that song? There's a line in it which says, Lord, if you mark our transgressions, who would stand? And the answer, of course, is none of us. None of us at all. Paul writes in uh, Romans 3 verse 10, There is no one righteous, no, not one. A few verses later, in verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one will be in the kingdom of God on the basis of their own achievements, but only on the basis of God's generosity. You see, the revolution, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, the revolution of God, brought about by Jesus, is a wonderfully generous revolution. It's a revolution of grace. It offers acceptance and embrace to latecomers and outsiders. It welcomes with open arms the last, the least, and the lost in society. People, perhaps, who have wasted their lives. People, in doing so, have hurt others as well as themselves. Those who are outcasts for many reasons. Those who have been rejected by others. But all are invited to a seat at his table. Wow! If that doesn't excite you, check your pulse. Because I don't think you're alive. <laughs> That's what the Bible calls grace. It's not fair, it's not. But not in the way that some people think. It's not fair in another sense altogether. It's not fair because Jesus took my place and paid my debt on that cross. That's why it's not fair. If God was fair, then he would have allowed us to get our just desserts. We'd be cast away from him and separated from him for all of eternity. But I thank God that he did not show me fairness. What he showed me was grace. He gave up his own son rather than giving up on humanity. What an incredible God that we serve. What incredible security that we have. What a wonderful eternity that we have to look forward to. You see, the gospel is good news. And it's good news for everyone. It's good news for every single person, not only in this congregation today, but every person in this world. It is never too late to join in God's revolution. Maybe this morning you've been thinking and saying, Steve, that isn't what I thought that Christianity was all about. Maybe that you believed up to now, until this morning perhaps, that God was far more like the older brother in Jesus' story. Someone who's harsh and cynical and joyless and mean and judging our every actions. But nothing could actually be further from the truth. In Jesus' stories, God is represented by the compassionate and generous owner of the vineyard who goes out of his way to lavish kindness and love on his workers. And God is like the father of the prodigal son, forgiving, extravagant, generous, kind-hearted. And what I would say to you this morning, please do not get the older brother and the father mixed up in these stories. Some Christians do. Don't get those two mixed up at all. They are nothing alike. And if you this morning are someone who has said to yourself, I could never become a Christian 
God's got too much on me. There's no way that he could love me. My life is too messed up, too sinful. What I would say to you is think again. Think again. If those are your reasons, those are not reasons at all. And those are a lie. Because God can make something beautiful out of your mess. And he can take the ashes of yesterday's dreams and he can turn them into a future and a hope and a joy and a purposeful life. And this morning I want you to go out from this place knowing, knowing not only in your minds but knowing deep in your hearts in your experience that God loves you. God loves you with an extravagant love and desires only good things for you. Let's pray together, shall we?